listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Morning, church. I tell you what, if you can sit and listen to children, right, preach the gospel to us, declare the truth of our risen God, if that doesn't like heat your blood up a little bit, I don't know. You may need to check your pulse. That was just great, wasn't it? My goodness gracious. Thank you. Thank you to those kids. Thank you to parents for for practicing that with them. And thank you so much to our kids workers. If you serve in our children's ministry, um, you don't hear this enough, but thank you. You You are doing the single most effective evangelistic ministry of our church if you serve in children's. And we thank you for that. That is that is gospel. That is kingdom work. So, this morning, we're back in Mark. We're going to be finishing out Mark 4 today. You can grab your Bible and turn there if you want to. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we'd love for you to actually read God's Word. We have house Bibles at the end of each row. All you got to do is just look kind of helpless to someone at the end of the row, and they will pass you a Bible, I promise. Uh, so we're in, we're in Mark 4. We're going to be finishing out that chapter today. I... Uh, it's funny, I'm a, so we have kind of different levels of leadership training and stuff going on at our church, and so I'm always reading a million different books with different groups of people and working through stuff. And so I'm, I'm rereading this book on sermon preparation now by a guy named Tony Morita, and it's really good. And I, I, this week I read his chapter on introductions and conclusions to sermons, and I was just like, man, I'm really bad at this. I, I gotta get better at this. And he like, called out the way I normally do an introduction. He's just like, no, you should never do that. You should never do that. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so I spent, I spent an inordinate amount of time this week going, how do I craft a better introduction? And I finally gave up and this is my introduction. So that's that. <laughs> Sorry, Tony, I failed you. Uh, <laughs> I just want to get straight to the text. Like, I don't know. I don't have any funny story. My life, you guys know me. My life is boring. I don't have any good stories to tell you to introduce this text. So we're in Mark 4. We're starting in verse 35, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. And the 35th verse of the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to Mark tells us this. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And this is the word of the Lord. So here's the thing. This is a pretty famous passage in terms of Jesus stories, right? So if you guys recall, we've been in Mark for a while now. Mark is generally considered to be the oldest of the gospels, the first 
gospel written probably within 20 to 30 years of Jesus' actual death and resurrection. This uh, most likely was written early after the death of the Roman apostles, right? So in the early to mid-60s, when Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome, their disciples, John Mark, who was uh, functioned as secretary to the apostle Peter, uh, began to write down the teachings of Peter. And if you look in Acts, when Peter taught, he only taught by recounting stories from the Old Testament and stories of Jesus' life. That's how Peter taught. He wasn't a trained rabbi. He wasn't an orator. He was a storyteller. And so uh, Mark wrote down the story of Jesus's life from the perspective of Peter. It's actually really well attested in church history. That that's where the gospel of Mark came from, that, that Peter's followers, specifically led by John Mark, wrote down these accounts as Peter had told them. And we talked about how Mark is this brilliant book and that it tells all these really short stories, but compiles them in a way that they, they interpret each other. And it kind of builds this flowing narrative that's really cool. It's, it's really unique amongst the gospels and that Mark is fast paced and it's kind of frantic and it and it 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 paints this image of the kingdom as like it's happening it's quick don't think don't delay And, and it just it presents jesus in a unique way that i think is unique to the apostle peter's experience of his savior and it's really cool so this story is really famous this is one of the most famous jesus stories jesus calming the storm right so let's, let's, here, here's what I'd like for us to do this morning. When we have a text that's really well known, it's really easy to breeze through it. It's really easy to miss details. And it's really easy to jump straight to the application that we've heard 10 other pastors give from this story, right? So let's, let's do our best to set that aside for a minute and to look at this text afresh. So what I'd like to do is let's, let's kind of summarize the story and then we'll, we'll go back and kind of walk through a couple details, a couple key pieces I think we could easily miss on our cursory reading. I think that's going to lead us to some, some, uh, some references to Jonah. It's probably going to lead us to some references to Paul and the Corinthian church and things like that. And then, and then we'll end out our time uh, by just, just ministering to each other. Sound like a plan? Cool. So here's the story. Jesus has been ministering all day long through public teaching. Go back over Mark 4, and remember, Jesus has kind of set up a public teaching forum. There's a, a physical place, you can still go there, it's called the Bay of Parables, and it's this natural bay in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, where if you get on a boat and you get about 30, 40, 50, 60 feet into the water, the way the stone in the beach is formed, it's this natural amphitheater, and you can easily speak to a crowd of upwards of 20,000 people with no amplification. It's really cool. You can actually look up YouTube videos of guys standing in boats, speaking at about this volume, and you can hear them like 150 yards away. It's, it's really neat. So that exists. Jesus has set himself up there. He's standing in a boat with this beach full of people, and he's just teaching from morning till, till sundown. And, and we've gotten to see some of this teaching, right? He's delivering these parables. He's going, the kingdom is like this. The kingdom is like this. The kingdom is like this. And Mark kind of intersperses these images. It's almost like, imagine there's a movie where you can see Jesus teaching to the public, and then it like clips forward to like Jesus sitting at the campfire with his followers, and they're like, 
So wait, what were you, the thing about the soils, what was the thing about the soils? And Jesus is like, oh, shoot, let, let me tell you about that one. And then I like, clips back and he's like telling the parable. And then, you know what I mean? Like that's kind of the image Mark sets up for us here. But for our purposes today, Jesus has spent an entire day in the sun, on the water, speaking out loud, right? So he's exhausted. And so he, he tells his followers, he says, hey, let's head to the other side. Let's head over to a different port. And the reason here is really simple. Jesus is preaching to the same mob he's been preaching to since Mark began. And they're not going to let him come to shore and go home, right? They're going to mob him. In fact, when Jesus tries this exact same thing in another setting earlier on in Mark 2 or 3, it actually says the crowd rushes around him so much that he fears they're going to crush him right? So Jesus is exhausted and he says, guys, let's not land. Let's head to a different port and spend the night somewhere else. And they're like, yeah, of course. Yeah, sure. So they grab the boat. They grab what they have. They don't even go and get any extra provisions, right? They take him just as he is and they head out across the Sea of Galilee and this windstorm kicks up and it's just a brutal windstorm, right? They freak out. Jesus is asleep on a cushion in the back of the boat. This storm is swamping the boat. They're they're fearing for their actual lives. They wake up Jesus and go, what the heck? He stands up, tells the storm to shut up and be quiet. It does, which by the way, it does, right? Like, try that. Try that. Next time like you hear the tornado sirens, walk outside and be like, peace, be still. Just see See what happens. Who knows? Uh, I mean, 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about the workers of miracles, right? So, so he tells the storm to be quiet. It does. And then he looks at him. He's like, what? That surprised you? And they're all just kind of open mouth like, what is going on right now? And that's just how the story ends. So Jesus is exhausted. He falls asleep. The storm whips up. They fear for their lives. Jesus wakes up, tells the storm to be quiet. It does. And then he's like, what? And then they're freaked out. And that's the whole story. So I want to I walk us through a couple things here. The first thing is this. Jesus falls asleep on the boat, right? And, and, and I want to I actually pause there for a second because this is the only time the Gospels actually recount Jesus specifically sleeping. And he's sleeping in the most ridiculous situation possible. He's in an open bow boat in the middle of a storm, right? It's pouring down rain. There are waves splashing over the side of the boat. These boats are like 25 feet long. They're not big. And they're in an open sea going like this. And Jesus is sound asleep, soaking wet on a pillow. That's insane, right? I mean, my dog like moves, like just goes, and I wake up and I'm like, what's going on? Like, Jesus is sleeping through. He's soaked to the bone and he's still asleep to the point that they have to wake him up because they're, they think they're dying. That's intense. And it tells us one thing. Jesus is spent. Jesus in this story is exhausted. He has poured himself out for the work of the kingdom. And by the time this boat sets sail, he's got nothing left. He needs some rest. He needs some quiet. He needs some sleep, right? 
And I'm going to be honest, like this is not the main point of the text, but I think it's important for us to pause here for a minute because I'm, I'm pretty certain there are people in this room that like, that's what you need to hear this morning is that, yeah, it's good to work and it's good to expend yourself for the kingdom, but you can rest. When you need to rest, you should rest. Jesus, I mean, do you think there just like weren't any sick people or demonized people or hurting or lost people in that crowd that Jesus just looked out and he was like, nope, these ones are good. All right, let's, take, let's kick it. No, he, he knew he needed to rest. So he left and he rested. Beloved, the work is never done. I want you to hear that. The work is never done. The work of the kingdom will not be done until Jesus returns and recreates this world. So in resting, you trust that it's God's kingdom and he's doing the work and he doesn't actually need you to get it done. Jesus could walk away from the work of the ministry and fall asleep on a boat because he knew who his father was and he knew what the kingdom was and he knew that God was building that kingdom. So we'll start there, right? For real. Some of you just need to go home and take a nap. This is the one time I'm going to tell you there's like three of you in the room. You can go to sleep during the sermon today. <laughs> the rest of you, <laughs> you know who you are. <laughs> so they, they, they go into this, Jesus is sleeping, Jesus is exhausted. I want to talk about the storm itself for a second, because this is the part I think we most easily miss, not because we skim over the story, but because we don't have a, a clear picture of the cultural context, right? So the thing about the Sea of Galilee is the way it is actually like, just the way it is shaped the way it exists, really intense windstorms are really common, especially in the northern Sea of Galilee, where Jesus is. Big windstorms that pop up out of nowhere in the evening are really normal. What's interesting to point out is that Jesus' followers are made up of experienced professional sailors and fishermen, and they think they're going to die. So there's something about this storm that is magnitudes above the normal storm, right? I mean, you think about it, the way the, way the Gospels tell the story, Peter, James, Andrew, and John, is that right? Those four? Yeah. Those four, like they own a fishing company. They, they spend their time in this water. So they shouldn't be surprised by anything it has to offer. And yet in this moment, they're fearing for their lives. This is an intense storm. And the reason for it is really, is really interesting, and we miss it in the English. So when Jesus stands up, he rebukes the storm. And, and there's a couple things that I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this just because, honestly, it's kind of weird and it can be a little distracting. But I want to I give us some context. And if it's something you're just interested in, you can come find me afterwards and I can connect you with a couple academic articles on this. But, but the thing is this, Jesus personifies this storm. He speaks to the storm as a person which is not normal. It's not the way you would speak to nature. In fact, the actual language Jesus uses in this phrase is the exact same phrasing Jesus uses when performing exorcisms. So Mark is, is telling this story in a way that he is, and remember, Mark puts a big emphasis on the reality of spiritual warfare and the spiritual warfare in Jesus' ministry. But, but Mark is subtly telling us here, there is something demonic about this storm. And, and that actually would have been really normal to the first century Near Eastern readers. 
the, the early churches, they heard this. There was this essentially superstition that existed amongst Jewish and a lot of the Near Eastern cultures that associated deep water with chaos and hell and Hades and demonic forces. And again, it's a weird thing. You can look it up. It's not something like the scripture affirms is true, but it was a commonly held belief that, and you can connect it back like Genesis 1 and God hovering over the chaos and bringing order to the chaos that God's power in creation pushes back the chaos, right? That's kind of the the theme and where this belief comes from. Not something, again, the scripture affirms, but a commonly held belief in the day. And so they're over this deep water, over the sea, this huge storm beyond normal, this supernatural storm washes up and they think it's going to kill them and they're terrified and Jesus stands up and exercises the storm, right? He commands the storm, peace, be still. He essentially, uh, the way Mark is telling the story, Jesus essentially is telling Satan to shut up. And he does. That's that's kind of that's kind of the way the way it's formulated. And again, we kind of we miss it in some of the subtle nuance of translation. But but what Mark is telling us here is Satan is challenging Jesus's ministry in the midst of Jesus's exhaustion, in the midst of his rest. The kingdom of Satan is seeking to end him. And and by the way. I think it's really telling of Jesus' opinion of the power and authority of Satan that Satan is raging to destroy Jesus' ministry, to sink the ship and kill him and kill his followers, and Jesus cannot be bothered to get up. Right? There, there is, and this, by the way, this brings us to the actual point of the text. And it's why I, it's why I bring that piece in, because I know it's a weird piece. Jesus in standing up and calming the storm and telling Satan to shut up and leave him alone, Jesus is exerting divine authority. Amen. Jesus, remember, up until this point, in fact, this whole day, Jesus has been speaking in parables. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has eyes to see, let him see. And explains to the disciples, not everyone's going to get it. If you want to understand who I am, if you want to understand the kingdom, if you want to see God working, you need to be with me because the teaching is mysterious. But if you're with me, you'll see. And so he gets out on the Sea of Galilee with his followers and he screams his divinity to them. In this moment, the disciples have eyes to see. They have ears to hear. Because Jesus stands up and he says, shut up. And it does. And it does. Jesus commands authority over Satan, over the cursed and broken world. He he demands that it submit, and it does. This is power. You know, it's it's interesting. This story is written in such a way that it really mirrors what happens in Jonah one and two. You should, and I, you really should. You should go back this week, reread Jonah. But we give specific emphasis to Jonah one and two. It's four chapters long. You can read it in like thirty minutes. But in the first two chapters of Jonah, you guys know, 
God tells Jonah to go to minister to some evil people. Jonah refuses. He runs away. He gets on a boat, and while he's in the boat, a huge supernatural storm rises up. The sailors think they're going to die. Jonah's asleep, sleeping through the storm. The sailors wake him up, and he goes, well, God's doing this, so you're going to have to throw me out into the water and kill me. And they're like, oh, okay. And they throw him out into the water, and then God stops the storm, and then the sailors fear God, and they worship him on the boat. And Jonah gets eaten. <laughs> but This story really mirrors Jonah 1, and there's purpose behind that. See, Jonah gives this declaration to the pagan sailors in Jonah 1, where where they're saying, who's your God? Maybe maybe he can stop the storm and we'll die. And Jonah's like, well, it's funny you mention that. I actually worship Yahweh. He's the creator of the land and the sea and has authority over all of it. And they go, what? Are you kidding? Your God can control the sea? Why are you sleeping? This is crazy. And then that's kind of how the story progresses. Jonah declares the authority of God over the abyss, over the chaos, over the storm. And in the story of Jonah, God calms the sea. He ends the storm. He saves the lives and the sailors worship God. In our story, Jesus doesn't take the place of Jonah. He takes the place of God and he calms the sea. He demands that the creation submit to him the cursed and broken creation that is under the dominion of Satan. He demands it submit to him, and it does. Guys, I cannot overemphasize this enough. Jesus is telling us loudly and boldly, he is God. This is mine. Satan can rage all he wants. He can't do anything to me. Just A few chapters before this, Jesus gave a parable to the Pharisees, right? And he said, I have come to this planet to bind up Satan and plunder his wealth. Right? He said, I am the stronger, strong man. Satan thinks he owns this world. He thinks he won when it was cursed. He thinks all of you belong to him, and he's not even worried about it. But I'm going to tie him up and rob him blind, and he won't be able to do a thing about it. Right? This is Jesus showing his disciples the truth of those words. Satan rages against Jesus saying, I will destroy you, right? You imagine, if you imagine the imagery of Jesus and his disciples in this little bitty boat oh, sitting over the top of the abyss and just the storm raging and lightning and wind and waves and Satan saying, this creation is mine, I will have you. And Jesus just stands up and says, shut up. And he does. This is our God. This is our God. He tells the cursed and broken creation to submit to him, and it does. It does. And this brings us to kind of how, how we engage with this story, right? So, so look at the actual apostles or the, the disciples in this story. They, they start out, and they're terrified, They're terrified, by the way, for a really valid reason. They think they're going to die. That, generally speaking, threat to your life can bring about some legitimate fear, right? And so this storm is raging, the boat is tossing and swamping, and they become terrified. They're worried for their life. 
And look really quick, and I want to point this out. I'm going to tell you this up front. The disciples exhibit two kinds of fear in this story, and I want us to pick apart the differences between these two kinds of fear and talk about maybe how that relates to the way the believer engages in the kingdom and engages with Jesus. So, so the storm is raging, they fear for their lives, and they're terrified, and look at their response in their terror. They immediately, immediately mistrust Jesus' ability and his intentions. Do you see that? Their, their lives are in danger. They think they're going to die. These are the men who sat with Jesus while he was preaching the parables, who watched Jesus cast out demons, who watched people watched Jesus cleanse the leper, who watched him heal the sick. But now the storm is here. And for whatever reason, this seems bigger and badder and stronger. And whatever image they had of Jesus, all they can see now is lightning, wind, waves, rain, and a sleeping guy in the back. Right? And so they're terrified. And you can see, right? You can, you can imagine this from Peter's perspective as he like shakes Jesus awake and the, the wind and the rain's going on. And he goes, teacher, don't you care that we're dying? And Jesus just kind of, you know, like soaking wet and sits up and he's like, stop. Right? What a, what an interesting image that As soon as the storm begins to rage, as soon as they fear for their life, everything they know to be true about Jesus goes out the window. I'll tell you why. It's because at this point, the the minute, the minute that they made a mental shift to go, oh, I'm at the mercy of this storm. This can take my life. And, And their fear moved to the wrong thing. And all of a sudden, Jesus' disciples are fearing the cursed and broken creation and fearing its authority over them. And the minute you do that, the minute they do that, Jesus all of a sudden seems disinterested and disengaged and incapable. Right? Don't you care that we're dying? How could you be asleep right now? Don't you see what's going on? This is the voice of mistrust. Mistrust rooted in the wrong fear. They fear the world. They fear Satan. They fear his dominion. They fear this cursed and broken world and its authority over their physical life. And in the midst of that, they step away from who Jesus has said he is and who he's proved himself to be over and over and over and over again. And then look what Jesus does. He calmly stands up rebukes the storm, and it submits to him. And then he rebukes them, right? Which, by the way, I imagine being rebuked by Jesus is not pleasant in any circumstance. But being rebuked by Jesus right after, he was just like, obey me! Now, guys, we need to talk for a minute. Like, "Ah!" right? That would be awful. But he rebukes the storm, it shuts up, and then he turns to his disciples and goes, really? Really? Have you no faith? Really? Storm. That's what got you. Okay. And, and their response at that point is once again terror. Right? They're terrified. They're looking at Jesus and looking at the water and going, what the heck just happened? 
Imagine, imagine it this way. You go to the park to eat your lunch. It's your lunch break. You're sitting in Forest Park. Let's just say you work near Forest Park. You go to lunch. You sit on a bench. You're eating your sandwich. You're reading the newspaper. And then you hear a noise. And you look up. And there's just a tiger just sitting on the bench next to you. And that moment, right, of going, huh, I am eating lunch next to a tiger. That moment where you just realize, the scary thing is right next to me. I'm not at the zoo looking down. I'm looking eye to eye. This is not how my relationship should be to a tiger. The the reality is the disciples have this terrible realization that the thing they should fear is not the storm, it's not the water outside the boat, it's the person in the boat with them. And it terrifies them. Now, I want to be real clear here, because I think in the Western church we do a really poor job of discussing the fear of God, and we neuter the fear of God, and we talk about having awe and reverence, and that is true. You should have awe and reverence for the creator of the universe. But these men are terrified for their lives because they just realized the thing that they thought could kill them was killed by the guy sitting next to them. And they are terrified of that power, as you should be, right? If you look up and realize you're sitting next to the tiger on the bench, you're going to have a tinge of fear going through your body, right? Like your hand's in the sandwich and his paw just like rests on your hand and you're like, uh, you can have it. <laughs> They're terrified of Jesus in this moment, and they say, who the heck is this? Even the storm and the winds obey him. Do you see that? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus demanded that the cursed and broken creation submit to him. And it did. That is terrifying. Right? That's, that's big. That's powerful. That's authoritative. And it scares them. Now, I, I want to I point out this difference here, right? So, when they fear the creation, when they, when they find themselves in fear of, of the, the cursed and broken world and its authority over their physical life, it draws them immediately to mistrust of Jesus. He must be incapable. He must be apathetic. He must be disinterested. But when their fear shifts from the broken and cursed creation and it, and it places itself on the actual creator God, all of a sudden they lean into reverent worship, right? They worship him. Who, who the heck is this? They, they lean into his message. They lean into his protection. They lean into dependence on him because their fear is placed in the right place. Which begs the obvious question for us, what are you scared of? Right? What are, you, what are you actually afraid of? And how does that affect your view of Jesus? Beloved, I would be willing to challenge you to say, if you are fearing the things of this world, I guarantee 
that will make Jesus seem disinterested in your eyes. That will make Jesus seem weak in your eyes. That will make Jesus seem incapable in your eyes. The more you fear the cursed and broken physical world, the less you will see Jesus' authority and power over it. I promise you. But, conversely to that, when you fear the actual Creator, when you fear the one who looks at the storm in the face and says, shut up, and it does, it draws you to dependence. That draws you to worship. That draws you to trust. Because ultimately, right? Ultimately, when you see the awesome, terrifying, powerful authority of Jesus Christ, and then you partner that with his unending love for you, what the heck does a cursed and broken creation have on you? What the heck can Satan do to you? Nothing. Nothing. Because I'm sure the disciples would have rather avoided that storm by Jesus' power and authority, right? That he would have gotten in the boat and been like, hey guys, real quick, and clear weather, we're good. But no, Jesus purposely, sovereignly willed that they might weather that storm, that they might weather it with him. I am sure that most of us would love to avoid the terrible things that happen in a cursed and broken world, the injustices and hurts and storms and pains that we experience. But beloved, that is not the case. You live in a cursed and broken world. You will experience that. In fact, Jesus promises you that if you submit yourself to his kingdom, you will experience the burden of the curse. You will be persecuted. You will be betrayed. You will be hurt. Because Satan will rage against you. If you allow yourself to partake in the kingdom, you are putting a target on your back. And the authority over this broken and cursed and dying world desires your failure. And he will rage against you. I'm going to be real. Those storms are real. Those were not figurative waves. Right? That was not an analogy for a boat sinking. That was an actual boat sinking. That was actual lightning. That was actual terror. That was actual fear for their lives. If you pursue the kingdom, you will experience the rage of Satan and the curse of a broken world. But beloved, it can do nothing to you. It can do nothing to you. You, you have the stronger, strong man in the boat with you. He, he sends you into the storm, not that you might avoid suffering in this world, but that you might weather the storm with him. Because he's stronger. Beloved, when Satan rages against you, you will feel it. And it will hurt, and it will seem huge, and it will seem insurmountable, and it will seem as though Jesus is disinterested and disengaged. But beloved, I promise you, when Satan rages against you, he will prove himself weak. Because Satan will be defeated by Jesus. The strong man is with you in the boat. And he tells the wind and the waves and the sea to be quiet. And they do. 
He will weather the storm with you. He will show himself strong. And he will show this cursed world weak. There's a passage I want to read to you from Paul's letters to the Corinthians. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God as elect? It is God who justifies. Who then can condemn? Let me say that one more time, beloved. It is God who justifies. Who then can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding on our behalf. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Come on. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Beloved, you are in the boat with the strong man. You are sitting at the bench with the tiger. Who's going to mess with you? What are you really afraid of? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a few minutes today. We're going to, we're going to sing. We're going to sing a couple of songs. I'm going to open up the communion tables for you guys if you want to come up by yourself or with your family and get communion. Here, here's what I really want to do, though. I want us to take a few minutes. We're going, to, we're going to take this time, right? It's going to be just kind of this amorphous time of some singing and prayer and communion and all those things. I want you to get with you and Jesus for a minute. I want you to, to honestly confess your fear to him. What is it that scares you more than Jesus? Honestly. What is it that is bearing in front of you that seems so huge, that seems so powerful, that seems so big, that Jesus just must be disinterested or he wouldn't have left you here? I want you to confess these things to him. If you, if you need to sit with someone and pray, we're going to have a couple couples, the Packards, the Hughes, myself, we'll be around the room. You can come find someone. If you feel weak this morning, you just want someone to pray over you, please come find them. Find me, find us. We would love to pray over you. If you need to sit with someone and confess out loud, come find one of them. Speak to them. Ask them to pray with you. If you need to sit by yourself and you need to reflect on the power and strength of our Jesus by yourself. Do that. Read the text. Look at what words stand out to you. Allow them to sit in your heart, sit in your mind. Pray over that. If you, if you want to declare 
your worship of Jesus and you want to thank him for his power and his strength over the cursed and broken world, come and take communion. Celebrate that. If you, if you feel, and I'm, I'm putting this out there. If you feel like you just need to pray over our body, man, come grab a mic and do that. I, I want us to actually take a few minutes and I want us to minister to each other. I want us to be with Jesus and be together as a family. Does that sound like a plan? I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll open up this time. Jesus, you are so good. You are so strong. Jesus, I confess to you. I confess to you that I, I fear this world. I fear the things that are around me. I fear stupid, petty stuff from people's opinions to my own success to my comfort. God, I I fear the dumbest stuff. Not even like the big and the heavy things, God. I, I so quickly mistrust you. I so quickly misread your intentions and assume you are disinterested. And I assume you're incapable But God, that is not true. You are so strong. Your kingdom is is conquering this world. You are recreating what is dead and making it alive. Jesus, this morning, may may you declare that truth in our hearts. May we be a people who actually, actually see your strength and fear the right thing. God, in our, in our honest acknowledgement of your awesome power, may we fall at your feet in dependence. We can't do this without you, Jesus. We just, we just really need you. So God, we trust you. We say that, God, we say that right now, that we trust you, even, even when our flesh and our hearts is crying against that. And we know you're trustworthy. We know you're capable. We know you're with us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.